Welcome everybody. The new year is around the corner. In Tibet, uh, we usually end and uh, welcome the year, the new year, with a lot of ceremony and rituals. Except uh, the Tibetan New Year is not happening right now, the Losara. Maybe there's still two more months before we celebrate the Tibetan New Year. We conduct all these uh, ceremonies uh, as a sacred means to remove uh, obstacles or parchat in Tibetan language. The Tibetan Buddhists uh, have this uh, concept the outer obstacles, inner obstacles, and the secret obstacles. Usually these monasteries will perform all sorts of rituals and they invite the lay community to witness them. Also they invite the lay community to go inside, to pray, hold the aspiration and the prayer to remove those uh, obstacles. And then after the celebration of New Year, the lay community will invite uh, lamas, monks, and nuns to uh, perform pujas or ceremonies for them in order to remove and reverse uh, obstacles. They also often chant this particular Mahayana Sutra known as the Heart Sutra and they chant that many times and then after chanting the Heart Sutra many times uh, sometimes they will clap their hands three times as a mudra as a gesture of uh, removing all the obstacles. Sometimes when I lead a meditation retreat, at the beginning I chant the Heart Sutra in Tibetan language and clap my hands three times with the aspiration and that we all will have the power and the strength to remove those obstacles. The outer obstacle is quite easy to understand. Illness, tragedies that we run into are outer obstacles. Imagine that you are driving 
somewhere middle of nowhere and has suddenly you got a flat tire, that is an obstacle. And that is a considered an outer obstacles. And then there are inner obstacles, which is very interesting idea, and then there are even secret obstacles. And these are more internal issues that we cannot uh, comprehend easily. And that requires uh, sometimes a deep self-inquiry, reflection to bring about light of awareness about them. And that's why they are named the inner and the secret obstacles. And the obstacle here means the forces that uh, hinders and that uh, hold us back from actualizing our highest uh, aspirations. We all have uh, high and uh, noble aspirations, and maybe sometimes it would be nice to write them down. And perhaps many of us are sharing right now the same kind of noble or high or the highest aspirations that comes from some deeper place within the Buddha nature or the depth of our being. And perhaps our highest aspiration is uh, to change the world or to change oneself. Or maybe our aspiration is to live our life fully. Or to find unconditional happiness. Or to manifest and actualize your potentials in this very life. Or maybe to heal your inner wound. And yet, there are all these uh, forces hindering our aspirations to become real, to become actualized. And here we are not going to worry so much about uh, the outer obstacles, because they are very easy to understand that that's why they're called the outer obstacles. And then the inner obstacles and secret obstacles are much subtler. We can't actually figure out them unless we go away and to be in a solitude and to observe a discipline like silence and then engage with a deep reflection and then finally this opening takes place in our sake, and we began to see all these layers of uh, internal obstacles holding us back from actualizing our aspirations. This is what a journey is all about. Uh, every 
spiritual retreat is a form of a journey, form of a pilgrimage. In the East, sometimes we go on pilgrimage literally as a both outer as well as also inner journey. When I was young, I had a chance to be on the pilgrimage. We had to walk for days and days to pay visit to this uh, particular holy site in eastern Tibet, a temple that enshrines the image of Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of uh, compassion. This uh, sacred image is surrounded by lots of uh, stories and uh, legend, and that's why it tracks lots of pilgrims from everywhere. In my hometown, in eastern Tibet, everybody pays a visit to this particular temple once in their lifetime. When my relatives told me that they are going to be on the pilgrimage and to pay a visit to this holy temple, I was very excited and requested them to take me along with them, which they accepted my wish. I was really excited. I couldn't even fall asleep before nights. I was so enthralled and ecstatic. And then as we started walking together and I felt sometimes very exhausted and tired. And then also I remember that there were many conflict between people as we travel together, miscommunication, infight, especially when you get tired, everybody has very short temper. <laughs> After a while, my pilgrimage wasn't that holy as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> my idea was that the pilgrimage is going to be so holy journey that we're all going to be really holy and nice towards each other, <laughs> constantly embodying love, uh, peace, but it turned out to be actually the other way around. <laughs> Everybody become mean at one point towards each other, and then somebody would tell you, today you're supposed to cook, I cooked already yesterday. And then we had one yak we brought, uh, and everybody was uh, fighting over the yak because when you get tired, you can ride the yak. So everybody said, oh, I'm tired. This time I'm going to ride the air. You already wrote it yesterday or this morning. So, and finally, we made it to this uh, uh, holy site in eastern Tibet. And uh, anyway, I didn't really realize at that time that it was very powerful. Uh, inward journey because uh, I learned a lot about myself. I learned my laziness, my short temper, my resistance, my selfishness, and my weakness. I actually learned about my own shadow more than I wanted to know.
So that the whole journey was uh, uh, in many ways a little bit uh, unexciting or even painful a journey into world of my own psyche, my inner world. So every spiritual retreat is a, a pilgrimage. Even though we are not walking together, this is actually a pilgrimage. We are all travelers. This is why when Buddha defined Dharma, or the spiritual path, by saying, there is a going away from that as a condition to become made into that as unconditioned, unbecome unmade. So he's uh, actually saying that uh, the spiritual practice is a form of a, a journey. Just like the pilgrimage I took. It's not really so much that we're going somewhere. It's not so much that we're really going from finite into the infinite, from ordinary to the divine, but it's more this uh, endless exploration, this endless discovery of uh, who we are. This is why all the ancient adepts said that if you want to be really free, you have to know yourself. The knowing self sounds very sometimes inviting because we hear these uh, wonderful teachings and messages from also great saints and mystics that there's a divine in each of us. And if you keep exploring who you are, someday you're going to realize that the divine within you, you'll realize that you are this uh, extraordinary entity. One time I have a friend and who told me that her practice is to just recite this phrase every day, I am that. She said, this is my practice, my mantra, what do you think? I said, well, this is really good, but there's no such thing that. And then she said, really, there's no that? I said, there's no that. When you say, I'm that, there's no that. And she was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> and she was uh, thinking that there's a that that she's going to realize. And then someday she's going to realize that she's the that. Maybe there's a that. Somehow I just teased her to let go of her attachment to the idea that someday she's going to wake up and realize that she's a that. So for me, this pilgrimage is not so much that we are going somewhere and, and to the divine or to the infinite, or maybe one day we are going to come across this extraordinary awakening to which that we realize suddenly that we are the divine. But it's more lifelong, endless, sometimes a painful, sometimes extremely rewarding journey on which we go through many sarga stages and each time we go through these stages we know something about ourselves that we didn't know before.
and especially we become aware of uh, these inner or secret obstacles hiding ourselves. And seeing our inner obstacles is actually the key to the liberation. And sometimes this is what uh, really true awareness is. All the problems, the struggles, the misery that we are going through in our own life as well as uh, and those who are witnessing this world is really coming from some kind of unawareness. And that's why when Buddha did this deep reflection to trace the root of human suffering to all its origin, what he come up with is this notion avadhyam, which means unawareness. Unawareness can be, of course, defined in many ways. It all depends on the scope of your thoughts. Some people might define unawareness of the other that forgetfulness of our true nature or lack of realization that we are all one and so forth. But uh, to me, the unawareness is that we don't see our own limitations, we don't see our own shadow, our own neuroses. That is the unawareness, which is the root of all our suffering. And there's a lot of uh, unawareness. There's indeed a collective unawareness, which explained by Thomas Merton. He said in one of his uh, writings, uh, most of the world is uh, either asleep or dead. Religious people for the most part are asleep, irreligious are dead. So his statement is a little bit actually unsettling. He's uh, saying that uh, there's this uh, all-pervasive collective unawareness that we all share, not just uh, people who don't meditate, people who don't call themselves as spiritual, but even those who identify themselves as religious, spiritual, and so forth. And somehow or another, we are all part of that collective unawareness. So when we sometimes look around, we see there's so much uh, suffering, pain more than we can even actually comprehend. And then when we look inside, we also see, and more and more, there's so much uh, suffering and also there's so much uh, neurosis in ourselves too. And let me give you some analogies, maybe even the stories to describe the magnitude of uh, unawareness that we all share, as well as also the suffering, the pain, all the neuroses that we 
all have some or another as a, a result of this uh, shared, collectively shared unawareness. First, I'm going to share a uh, tell you a story of uh, Avalokiteshvara. It's a very famous uh, legend, and uh, you don't have to take this uh, legend uh, literally. You can take this as a more metaphorical story. Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of compassion, when he was a bodhisattva, he made this uh, strong vow that he's going to liberate everyone in this uh, universe. And he vowed that he's not going to take the eternal rest or the eternal vacation until he liberate everybody in the universe. And then he stayed with his uh, noble commitment. He come to the universe and he just liberated everybody. And then he thought, now there's nobody in the world, everybody's enlightened. He decided to take the eternal rest. When he went back to his uh, world, the Potala, his paradise, he looked back and he noticed suddenly that uh, the universe is uh, full of all these lost souls, more than ever. And then he come back, he liberated all these souls. And then he went back, he thought, now there's no more soul. All the souls are liberated. And every time he thought, he finished his work. The universe, the whole world is uh, full of all these lost and confused and painful souls. And he did this six times and finally he got really exhausted. <laughs> so exhausted that he lost his uh, precept, his commitment. And the legend just tells that by the power of breaking his uh, sacred uh, vow, his body fell apart into many pieces. And then he was experiencing this pain and agony. And then suddenly the Buddha Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light appears and blessed him. And so this uh, broken Avalokiteshvara rose up and manifest into different uh, forms of Avalokiteshvara, including the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. And he then decided to stay in the world and to help everyone, to love and to embrace everyone, and not to seek some kind of eternal peace for himself. Uh, of course, you don't have to take this literally, but this is a very beautiful story. It tells us that there's a lot of actually pain and suffering. The more you meditate, the more you open heart, the more you become aware of the sorrow and craziness of the world, the truth. And then when you turn your attention inward, there's also sea of your own sorrow, your own neurosis as well. That's why one time Buddha was delivering a sermon and he asked his disciples, all the tears coming from your own 
crying, from feeling the sufferings from all these countless transmigrations. And let's say you put all the tears together, and then is that sea of tears bigger than the four great seas in this world? And then his students all responded with the same answer. They all said yes. And that sea of tears will be bigger than the sea of the four great oceans in the world. And Buddha said, now you understood it. And here Buddha is actually pointing out that when we open our heart and when we go inside, we all see there's a, indeed there's a sea of sorrow. And as well as the sea of uh, neuroses or the kleshas. And this is uh, the beginning of awareness when you begin to really see what is inside. It's not really that difficult to acquire awareness or self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is in many ways very easy, even though it sounds very difficult. When somebody says you have to cultivate self-knowledge, it sounds really very difficult. task sounds very esoteric. And yet, the self-knowledge turned out to be actually quite easy task. It's more whether you have a willingness to cultivate self-knowledge or not. I read recently this uh, uh, article which is very much uh, in harmony with the Buddhist uh, teachings. First, uh, let me recite this uh, uh, famous Tibetan proverb. It's also a Buddhist saying, which goes, the only thing that is not mysterious and that is not hidden to your awareness is your unconsciousness. Which means that uh, your own mind, your unconsciousness, your inner world is actually the most obvious thing that there is. This uh, article was very interesting. I read it and uh, have been quoting it because uh, it's very much uh, in alignment with uh, this Buddhist idea that uh, self-knowledge is indeed a simple task. And this article was saying that uh, the consciousness is not actually that mystery. Even though we have uh, this uh, long-held idea, almost some kind of collective imagination that uh, consciousness is uh, like the most uh, hidden secret, the most uh, maybe unfathomable realm, only yogis, mystics, or the meditators have access to it, but not the common people like you and me have access to it. And this article says, actually, what is the most mystery thing in this universe is the matter, not the mind. That's kind of interesting. Usually we don't think matter is that uh, mystery, that secret. We don't think of this 
chair or this uh, jacket is that great mystery. But there are actually mystery from when you look at them from the point of quantum physics, they are totally mystery. If you just uh, keep meditating, inquiring into even the secret of this very simple object like uh, this clock, and eventually maybe you are going to come across a reality that you cannot comprehend. Maybe you're going to come across a transcendence, not through exploring your consciousness, but through exploring your wristwatch. <laughs> this sounds very interesting, doesn't it? And it is true that our unconsciousness is really obvious. This is both bad news and good news. The good news is that now self-knowledge is finally not so difficult. There's hope for enlightenment. After all, we can all club our hands and dance. But bad news is that, uh, and that maybe we are going to know our mind and who are sooner than we want. And it is true that actually when we look inside, honestly, we kind of know what is going on there. Whereas if I look into your mind, I really don't know what is going on in your mind most of the time. Even though we always under assumption that we can kind of know what is happening in somebody's mind, I often lead a retreat and I sit in front of everybody and now and then I end up kind of looking around and see what's going on and I see somebody's really grouchy and then I start forming the story. Oh, this person having really difficulty and this person may be confused. Should I help that person? And then towards the end of retreat, and this person approached me and said, this is the most beautiful retreat I have done. <laughs> <laughs> and I had all this amazing awakening, transformation, etc. And I tell myself, I guess I can read people's mind after <laughs> all. Even right now, if we just uh, pause and to turn intention and what we, we really can see what is going on, and maybe we end up seeing things that we don't want to see. A great uh, Tibetan master, Lama Mupam, from the 20th century, said something really startling. He said. One inward dharma is better than one outward dharma. And that's quite an interesting statement. Sounds a little bit dualistic by saying that uh, there is some kind of hierarchy within the realm of dharma. Especially for Buddhists, that's kind of shocking statement because we have been taking refuge in dharma. We think that dharma is always noble. Dharma is always a perfect path. And here he's saying, actually, there's a difference in the realm of a dharma. When he said uh, outward dharma, he's not really talking about a particular form of a practice or tradition or methodology. He's uh, referring to any kind of spiritual practice 
that is done without any kind of true introspection, without reflection, self-reflection, without really looking inward. And then he's saying that those spiritual practices have a very little power to change our consciousness. We can engage with the most beautiful, most sacred spiritual practices for decades and decades, but if we just forget to look inside them, and those practices have very, very small impact on our consciousness. Whereas if we turn attention inward with the courage, with the honesty, and began to journey inside and to learn about honest, radical light of awareness on our own neuroses, our own misery, our own hidden habitual tendencies. And then our practice have magic, have blessings. And sometimes our practice can actually bring about even radical transformation. I'm not uh, actually indicating that uh, uh, here we are just engaging these outward dharmas. Uh, I'm not actually suggesting that this is what we are doing. And this is actually quite an amazing community in my understanding. Uh, my friend and I coined this term Buddhist convention. In Asia, we have really lots of Buddhist conventions. My friend, who is also wonderful Tibetan Lama, his name is Kambu Orgyen Chuan. He recently wrote a book called uh, Our Person Mind. He lives in the Bay Area, and he's a very humorous person. And he and I coined this word, Buddhist convention. Because we see there are all these uh, spiritual gatherings in Tibet, also in other countries in Asia, where thousand, thousand people come here and there and here and there. And they all come together and sometimes we just felt it was some kind of Buddhist convention. And you hang out with Buddhist people, you talk like Buddhist people, and uh, you act like Buddhist, uh, you see, you talk like Buddhist. Uh, and you hang out with all these Buddhist celebrities, <laughs> and you do basically Buddhist thing. And maybe you'll find a Buddhist partner if you don't have a partner. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> we call it Buddhist convention. And sometimes uh, there's not so much really really introspection where people sit and look inside. Actually, this sounds so easy, but this is not really easy. I will tell you, what you're doing is really difficult right now. I just want you to make sure that you give yourself uh, some credit. Can you do that? What you're doing is extremely courageous. I'm not trying to make you feel good. Please, don't <laughs> misunderstand. <laughs> I'm not trying to flatter you at all. This is the last thing I want to do right now, to flatter you, to make you feel good by telling all oh, your all bodhisattvas, but actually what you're doing is extremely courageous. And that might be kind of hard 
for people to understand from outside, right? If somebody comes here, look around, what we are doing sounds really easy. We are just uh, eating really good food, vegetarian food, and served on time. We are not really doing anything. We are just sitting and dozing <laughs> off. <laughs> it seems what we are doing is really easy. And it seems there are lots of other things that are much more heroic and much more impressive than what we are doing. But uh, the truth is this is not something easy to do for most people in this world. There's indeed this long held, almost like age-old cultural and almost like a human tendency which is a form of resistance, a resist to, to the awakening. You know, sometimes I work with many, many people and I often come across people, not only people, but even actually Buddhists who have really hard time to sit and to observe silence and to just uh, witness what is happening. And many people have really hard time to do that. And sometimes people have resistance and their resistance is quite obvious. They say, well, I don't like this. I don't like this practice. And some people have a much more subtle, trickier resistance. They say, well, I, I can do this practice, but uh, I'm busy with another spiritual practice. That is much more interesting than this one. <laughs> more esoteric. Just sitting and doing nothing, observing your thoughts. It seems it's not so sacred. I'm doing something really sacred. And I can see that is some kind of really powerful resistance. But it's still resistance. Resistance to look inside. There's a, there's a very interesting anecdote. Bartram Bush's life is full of anecdotes. Bhattarim Bhoche was an extraordinary yogi and he was like the one of the most uh, celebrated Tibetan saints. And there are a lot of uh, wild uh, stories, anecdotes around his life. Some of them are true, some of them are maybe exaggerated after he died. And one time, this sounded actually a true story, one time he was uh, traveling as a wandering mendicant. Even though he was very famous, people had a hard time to recognize him because he was always in the incarnate as a beggar. And then he was traveling and ran into this yogi, this monk, meditating or practicing something in the cave. And then this monk didn't know this stranger was indeed this famous saint, Fatarambhachi. And then Fatarambhachi asked this uh, monk, how long have you have been practicing this care? The monk said, so many years even I don't remember. Fatarambhachi said, that's quite impressive. Could you please tell me what your practice is? The yogi said, tolerance. And then Fatarambhachi pretended, he didn't hear, pardon, what did you say? I told you tolerance. <laughs> and then again, Fatarambhaji pretended that he didn't hear. Pardon me, what did you say? 
<laughs> At that time, this monk lost his, uh, his, uh, his uh, coolness. He got really angry, furious. I told you many times I have been practicing tolerance. <laughs> Are you deaf? Get out of here. <laughs> and the father and said, that's strange kind of tolerance you're practicing. <laughs> Many people indeed in the world practice a spiritual bypass. And actually spiritual bypass is much more popular than we think. And we can actually just practice spiritual bypass and to feel really good because we tell ourselves this wonderful story that we are walk in the path and we are somehow going in the right direction and so forth. By the way, I'm not really indicating that this is what you're doing. I already told you are actually quite courageous. Because this is what we are doing in the end. In, in my understanding, we are sitting together as a pilgrims or the night travelers <laughs> and we're walking together and we don't really have any kind of false solace that we can hold on to right now nor we have a illusory security that, that we can take refuge in we are walking together but also at the same time we are walking alone all the time and we are meeting with uh, our own new faces and also we are exploring all these uh, uncharted realms and territories within our own inner world. And sometimes we see our thoughts, feelings, other times we see something even much uh, deeper than them, something we can't even actually Analyze. So on this journey, we are going to allow ourselves to become aware of our own inner poisons, our own hatred, our own greed, our own attachment. And also we are going to become more and more aware of our own inner hindrances that is holding us back from living our life fully. Maybe this is a perhaps a strongest aspiration for every human being, the desire to live a life fully, which is a very straight expression for me. There is no any kind of spiritual uh, jargon in that when we say my desire is to live a life fully and we all have a, of course a right to live our life fully and to to find uh, more joy love and to feel that this 
world is friendly, to feel that our life is meaningful, and to feel that somehow we are in some kind of harmonious relationship with everything, with people, with life, with even difficulties. There's a way that sometimes we can feel we're in a harmonious relationship actually with everything, with even the difficult circumstances, even with the loss, even with the illness, even with the separation. In Tibetan tradition, there is a particular kind of practice which is about changing your perspective on everything. And sometimes we call it the way to bring all conditions on the path. And many Tibetan teachers uh, wrote uh, inspiring poems, verses on this particular practice, such as Ngachitome uh, Zambo and Zapata Rinpoche. And basically, the point of this practice is to change your perspective towards uh, almost every condition that you go through in your life. And so you can feel that you're not fighting, you're not struggling, you're not trying to defend yourself. And you feel that there's peace inside you no matter whatever is going on in your life, in your external as well as internal life, but you are feeling that you're in a this harmonious relationship where the, the very condition that you're going through today or right now in this very moment. And traditionally, there are these beautiful uh, perspectives, point of view that we can memorize and learn, and sometimes we even recite those sacred aphorisms to plant those more enlightened point of views or the sacred outlook. And uh, I sometimes sing these uh, verses. Uh, I don't have to translate the whole thing, but there's one verse written by Yassi Tomebzambo, a very well-known Tibetan saint, and he said, I'm happy if I'm sick. And then he gave a whole reasons of logics and perspective why you should be happy when you're sick. It kind of makes sense. And then he said, I'm happy if I'm not sick. <laughs> and then he gave a whole logic, which is very easy to understand. And then he will say, I'm happy if I'm dying. And he gave all this logic of why he's happy if he's dying. And they're very convincing. <coughs> Logics. And then he would say, I'm happy if I'm not dying. <laughs> and he said, I'm happy if I'm rich. And then he gave all these reasons why he's happy when he's rich. But he said, I'm happy totally if I'm poor. And then he gave a whole lines of logic reasons why he should be happy when he's poor. And which totally makes sense. And the idea is, uh, is learning how to be in harmonious relationship with uh, all circumstances 
and all human conditions which are unpredictable and they are always changing constantly. You know, I don't have any kind of big claims like awakening or transformation, but I like to share a personal story with all of you, not because I want to talk about myself, but because uh, I want to share this with all of you. So, you know, this is not just a theory. Three years ago, I had uh, this physical injury without getting into the detail. And then it caused uh, lots of uh, pain. And also, the pain lasted uh, quite a long time. And there was uh, sometimes even misdiagnosis about uh, the whole illness. And uh, I was told that my illness is a very dangerous one. And then with that the diagnose and my also intolerance of pain, because I have never been sick for a long time in my life. My body has been actually healthy all along and suddenly I was having a hard time to walk and then with all this information coming from outside I told myself that maybe my life is finished, the life that I knew and then I start just going into this kind of dark place in my mind and envisioning all these worst scenarios about my future. And then that was very difficult for me. But now and then, I taught myself, well, I'm going to surrender. Maybe I can't do anything. I have to surrender. And there are some moments I felt that I was actually quite happy. I was actually truly happy a few moments. And it didn't last a long time, that happiness. <laughs> and comes and goes, but there were many moments I become kind of carefree, reckless inside. I said, I really don't care so much anymore. I'm going to just surrender to life and I'm going to let all my hope and fear die and just to, to live the life and with an open heart. So I'm not saying that I gained that kind of joy all the time, but that visited me and I think that visited all of us periodically. You don't have to be meditated to have those kind of really very amazing, inspiring vis visitation from random insights, joy, freedom, awareness. So here, um, perhaps uh, when you are meditating, uh, uh, naturally you see that you walk on this really amazing uh, inward journey and uh, you feel that you are literally exploring all these different parts of yourself. You see your own thoughts, your emotions, and you see your also mental tendencies. One time I asked somebody, this a uh, Dharma student in my community, 
because I was curious about uh, kind of the thoughts and feelings that people go through. I kind of know what I go through. I'm pretty much sure the kind of thoughts, the feelings that I go through pretty much uh, every day. And then sometimes uh, I'm also curious about what other people go through because uh, as a teacher I want to understand uh, more about other people and what goes on in their consciousness. And uh, I asked this person, this was just a few months ago, what kind of thoughts you go through and what kind of thoughts actually you wake up early morning and this person says, the thought that always pops up in my mind, I don't like my body. And that's very shocking, but maybe it's true that many people wake up in the morning, read this thought that I don't like my body. And you can see that we can actually develop this thought into some kind of mental tendency that keeps repeating itself again and again from day to day, month to month, year to year, even decades to decades. And many people may actually live with this thought and die with the thoughts unless there is some kind of awakening, unless they start actually practicing path of inquiry and true reflection. And it must be really painful to wake up every morning with these thoughts. Recently I was teaching in in South Korea. We had uh, those very one-on-one heart-to-heart interviews, meetings with many people, and uh, lots of people shared their deepest uh, sorrow. And lots of their suffering has to do with actually self-loathing and self-hatred. They don't like their body, they don't like their career, they don't like uh, who they are, and some people feel that there's something wrong with themselves. And yet, when we really look into the very much the foundation of all this uh, neuroses, what we found is just uh, uh, unawareness. That's all there is. And we began to see the illusory nature, the falsehood of all these uh, neuroses, these concepts, the believers, ideas that we hold on to daily ideas about life, world, universe, ideas about who we are. So in the practice, we become more and more aware of our mental tendencies as well as uh, their foundation, which is actually unreal, which is illusory. And then, uh, maybe once we become aware of them, we realize that uh, we don't have to feed them. All our pain, all our suffering, including our self-loathing, self-hatred, actually they will die, they wear out by themselves if you don't feed them. The truth is that we are always feeding them, 
in some sense actually we are feeling them you know sometimes they say in Buddhist teachings uh, you, you can be your worst enemy and this is kind of hard logic to figure out but it can make sense when you look from that point of view because we are the one who are actually feeling our own sorrow our own suffering we feed them with unawareness Whereas if we start to bring about more and more awareness into them, we really don't have to do anything then sometimes. We don't have to go to India to jump into River and Ganji and say, oh, now I'm purifying my vasanas. We really don't have to do anything because awareness itself is the, the ultimate satna, the satna of all the satnas. Because what is happening in the awareness, no one, no forces are feeding our neuroses and they are actually going hungry, literally. And, and step by step they are dying. They are wearing out. <laughs> and this is nice news, isn't it? Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.